I'm Jody Klugman Rabb, a licensed marriage and family therapist in California. I took a DNA test for fun that led to the shocking discovery that the man who raised me was not my biological father, that I am an NPE or a non-paternal event. And I'm Christina Bryan Fitzgibbons. I've been a genetic and family investigator in Northern California since 2015. Most of my work focuses on interpreting DNA results and locating biological family. And that's how I met Jody. Apparently, we were very, very missed. Where's the next episode? What's going on? Boy, has it been a doozy of a year. Had to had some personal time. My mom had some health issues, and then she didn't have some health issues. And now that's all resolved. But it really threw me for a loop. I'm sorry for not being around. I'm so happy to be back with you, though, doing this. We've decided to do things a little differently going forward. I think as much for our own interest as for the sake of developing the podcast a little further. So instead of a straight, raw interview between us and our interviewee, we're now doing a little bit more narrative interviewing. It's always good to try it a different way. A lot of the time, I, I tend to have these stories somehow in my friendship circle. Kate Point, our guest today, Alicia. Yeah. I met her through the big fancy NPE group. We interviewed the founder a while ago, Catherine. She was the episode Catherine the Great. And I met Alicia through that group. And Alicia hired me to come out and present at her group's uh, community meeting in 2019 in Seattle. So Alicia has been a friend over the years, and now we get to hear her story of discovery. We're just thrilled to be able to share a story that so many now uh, in the United States are sharing, as we know from the uh, NPE groups and all the media coverage that has been going on nonstop. Alicia's story is unique for several reasons, not the least of which is the way it began with a pretty significant medical complication. The theme of synchronicity so common in our guests' stories played out for Alicia, too, when her surgeon directed her to find ways to use her brain more. I had had a lot of medical problems, and because of those medical problems, I ended up retiring as a uh, registered nurse in 2012. Um, After that, as I was recovering from a a massive brain tumor that was removed, um, I had been diagnosed with a massive motor cortex brain tumor. And after several surgeries and rehab, one of the big things that my neurosurgeon said uh, is that you really need to be using your brain more. And I started looking into genealogy. And as I was starting to put together my family genealogy puzzle, I realized this is a huge endeavor. And I was definitely using my brain when I was studying it. In 2014, the price of DNA tests became significantly less expensive. So Alicia tested with a half-brother, not hoping for a specific answer. She wasn't asking a specific question. But as these stories often go, Alicia got a big surprise. And when the test results came back, it showed we were not at all related. I didn't at the time when I asked him to do the DNA test with me think, oh, God, I'm going to come up with, like, finally the answer. But when I finally got the answer, when the DNA test showed up on my computer in 2014, 
I, I, I was just, I was in shock. I was, I was sitting at my table when I got the results in. What I was, my head was just swirling because I knew what this meant. But I, it was still not enough. I was in this like, oh my god, I need to talk to my sister. Who I shared a sister. I have a sister with my mom. My, we, there's two of us. My father had been married before he married my mom. So I had called my sister and asked her if she wouldn't mind doing the test. She didn't believe it. She says, there's no way. There's, there's no way. This cannot not be true. We've talked about intuitions and so forth. But as my childhood went along, I didn't fit in uh, the father's side of the family. They were lovely people, but I just didn't fit in. We have talked a lot about intuition on this podcast. It's a big personal interest to me. Many people enter into this discovery struggling with the sense they were an outsider but have no context to understand why that is. Here again, we see the powerful role intuition plays, alerting Alicia to genealogical bewilderment she didn't even know she had. But as an RN, she knew the science behind the test was correct. But there was just too many things that led me to know that this was the truth. When she did the test and my son, it showed that uh, she was, and she's younger, one year younger than me, that she was related to our older half-brother, but I was not. My son did the test, and it showed he was related to my sister, but not my half-brother. And so this began the journey of now we needed to talk to my mother. Okay. For those of you who need a whiteboard to keep track of what's changing here, the test revealed Alicia's assumed full-blooded sister changed to a half-sister. The assumed half-brother changed to a stepbrother, meaning that there was no um, biological DNA relationship at all. And all of this boils down to who was actually her biological father, since with this outcome, it couldn't be the man who raised her. Alicia's story differs from many of those we've interviewed in that she has a really close and loving relationship with her mom, despite having discovered this DNA surprise. Well, actually, my mom and myself, we've had a wonderful, just a very loving relationship. In fact, really, she raised my sister and I. My father was aloof in some respects, even though he was he was there. He paid the bills and took care of us. But my mother was the one that raised us. I'm 56 years old, and it was just from that time frame uh, in in those days where the, the woman raised the, the kids and the father to work, you know. So he was pretty quiet. So we had a very, very good relationship. So how did Alicia approach her mom? I love the story for so many reasons. But chief among them is Alicia's direct and respectful approach with her mom, something that hasn't yielded many positive results for other NPEs and didn't at first for Alicia either. I reached out to her. I was on a, on a actually walking. I thought I was trying, trying to think of the best way to talk to her. Like I needed to be moving. So I was out on a walk, had my headset on and I called her and I, I just said, mom, I need to talk with you about some things. And she said, sure. So we spoke and I said, I did a DNA test and the results have shown some very interesting information that I really need your your help with. And as I was speaking this, I could hear this like major silence on her end. She lives in the, in the South. She's in Alabama. I live in Seattle, Washington. So we're very far away from each other. But she says, um, I don't know what you're talking about. She denied it. She completely denied anything uh, about it. Well, I just shut up on me. And then within I'm out walking, I'm like crying. I'm like, tears are just flowing from my eyes. I'm like, how do I deal with this? 
Well, within 10 minutes or so, she called me back. It, you know, she has a conscience. She's a really loving person, but she wanted us to go to the grave. She didn't want me to know about it. She called back and she goes, yes, I, there was a, a time in my life that I had an affair. And she said her marriage wasn't going well. She met somebody. It was a very short-term relationship over a couple of months. She left her. She was married to who, who was her husband, um, my sister's father. And she left him and went to where my father lived. And they had an affair for about anywhere from two to three months. She then said that she left him and went back to her husband. And after that time, she came back. This, it was the spring of 62. By the fall or September or October of 62, she starts throwing up. And she's back with her husband. She realized she's pregnant. So um, she's explaining to me that when she went back to her husband, they had made a pact with themselves, decided they would never tell anybody that this is going to be their baby and nobody else's. And that's the way it went. Alicia's dad, her stepdad, to be accurate, knew of the affair and the pregnancy. Both Alicia's parents decided to enter into the secret together. Another unusual theme in the story we usually only see in donor conceptions. Alicia's mom thought her stoic, private nature would guard this secret to her grave, but her stepdad did actually take it to his grave when he died in 1993, but not before leaving a kernel of information that would only make sense after Alicia saw the results of her DNA test. He was on his deathbed, actually, and he just said the weirdest thing to me. He goes, your mom is not who you think your mom is. And I'll never forget that, but I, did, I just thought, well, okay, his lung cancer had gone to his brain. Maybe he's just kind of out of his head. People in the NPE role are really good at deflecting this strange, intuitive sense they live with not really wanting to upset family members or deal with the unexplainable. The same tends to be true of the secret keepers, the moms usually. Alicia's mom would block out all details of the affair, including that it happened at all and would never be able to remember his last name. That forced Alicia to go back to the drawing board of her DNA results to find the next clues. My mom is actually from Berlin, Germany. She was born in Germany. She was a first-time immigrant, so when my DNA relatives showed up on my Ancestry.com site, uh, they were all, in fact, I found out I was 52% Jewish, so they were all Jewish matches, but they were just four to six cousins. So as more and more people were taking the tests, and, you know, my mother was still blocking out with her memory was like, you know, it was just this unbelievable block of memory, but she could remember the street address of where we lived in 1964, so I'm still trying to figure that one out. I was born in 63, and I'm like, like why, why can't you not remember this other man's name? So, you know, I just had to let it go. By 2017, I got a closer match, and I ended up talking with this woman in Rhode Island, and our, our stories were very similar, but we were like, we were second to third cousin match, and it was then that I decided I'm going to look into the 23andMe. And I took that test, and that's when I got my aha moment. It was September of 2017. In between all this, I had three genealogists working working my case. Uh, they ended up just becoming really very good friends with me because they really wanted to help me find my father, my biological father. 
Ultimately, Alicia's mom was able to remember the man from her affair and that he lived in Kentucky, which was really a critical part and helpful to the search angels. I was not one of them. I got this very close match and I went to her Facebook page. We became very good friends as she was helping me with the search. And it just so happened there was a rare match. And uh, I'm, I'm not going to say it, the, the last, the surname, but it was a rare Jewish name. And it ended up being that he was a rabbi. I ended up getting, talking to him on the phone and I was able to start putting some of it together. But my friend, Nancy Shelton, ends up being a match to my sister, who's a, they're cousins, and we're actually, you know, cousins from the, the the stepfather side now, even though we're not blood related. I go to her Facebook page, and I find that she's actually friends with the rabbi's family, a, a family member. You know, as Jody knows, it, from us both going through this shocking discovery, we're just on this major big hunt where we, we're so focused on trying to figure out what's going on. It almost like an obsession. It does become like an obsession. I am not adopted, and I do know who both of my biological parents are. But I can imagine the need to know who you are and where you came from biologically is really strong. So Alicia reaches out to this new cousin on Facebook, not knowing what responses she would get. Um, He was a little shy of wanting to share too much information, even though he acknowledged that we were related. This sister-in-law was a friend to my uh, genealogist who lived in the same city as my dad did. And it got to the point where they were not really wanting to get to know me. There was a rejection pretty much from the closest family members. Rejections can be common when finding biological relatives. Some people are just really wary of somebody showing up out of nowhere. It's really common for people to be suspicious of their motives, frequently believing they're after an inheritance. Some are just not willing to deal with different personalities and shun the discovery as junk science. And Alicia's new cousins did just that. They hung up the phone before she could even give them the full story. The reality is that science doesn't lie, people do. Which brings us back to Alicia's mom. I was still trying to figure out who my dad was. I ended up finding out that my dad was over 30 years older than my mother. My mother mixed up so much. Uh, she, she said so many different things that it confused me to really figuring out who my dad, my real father was. She said my real father was over six feet. Uh, she made these like I, things up that made no sense. And But when I called her and said, Mom, I'm getting very close to figuring out who my dad is. She started giving up certain things. Like she goes, I remember his name was Jim. And I said, well, was my dad tall, mom? Was he over, really over six feet? Because my kids are five, seven each. Uh, my ex-husband was five, se- five, seven. And she finally said, no, your dad was, your dad actually was short, like five, six, five, seven at the most. Things started clicking. For the person that had the Facebook friend of the re- relationship she started looking at the genealogy and the census records. She only found one man in the family that could have basically been my father, and he was 30-something years older. Mom said he was maybe 10 years older. Mother had, as far as I was concerned, never told me a lie. So it was very, very difficult for me to, un- to understand why my mother would do this to me, put me in a position where I'm like not, I'm having to figure out who my real father is. I was so sick on my stomach. I mean, I I can't even begin to tell you 
And of course, Jody understands what this feels like. Over a three-year period before I really found my father, I had all these hints. I mean, I was the only left-handed person in the family who I thought was my dad's side. When I finally found the family, I found several left-handed people. I have an older son that's very disabled, has autism. I actually on an obituary of a, of a cousin's and that one sister-in-law we found online, she has a, a daughter that looks a lot like my son, who's severely autistic. That broke my heart. I knew I was in the right family when I saw that. Searching for a parent becomes fevered when you get close. The rate of discovery happens faster and faster as you approach the right match, something your subconscious seems to be able to anticipate as the puzzle pieces fit together. Alicia finally got the break she'd been waiting for and hit the jackpot. She had a new DNA match with a very close relative that happened to be a first cousin living in Chicago. Now more puzzle pieces were fitting together. My father was born in 1912. And I found one cousin, his first cousin, living in Chicago in assisted living. When I called him, he immediately told me the story. He said my father was just a brilliant attorney, but had this dark side. He would get in trouble with women. I was told by this cousin that in the state he was living in, that he was being groomed quite possibly to, be, to run for governor. He was a very strong personality, and there were people that just were his enemies. So as according to this one first cousin, he said that there were people looking to, to put him out, I guess, or to find a smoking gun to go against him. And I think the smoking gun was probably truthful because he had this problem with, with women. He made some mistakes in his practice, and then he was also involved with younger women. Alicia found her father. He was a highly intelligent driven and prominent criminal defense attorney, well known across the Eastern Seaboard and Kentucky. She began to get to know him through hundreds of articles she found in newspapers.com, as well as in Master Detective Magazine. She also learned her father was ultimately disbarred in 1953 for writing bad wills in his legal practice. He lost his fortune and was cut off from the family for the philandering with younger women, one of whom was Alicia's mother. Listening to my my dad's first cousin explained this to me. And then he said, if it wasn't for the women, your dad would have been the greatest of all time attorney in the state that he lived in, in the state of Kentucky. And I had to hear that. And it was just heart wrenching for me because this was my flesh and blood In my own flesh and blood. The first cousins were rejecting me. Emboldened by the positive reception from her new cousin and the wealth of information he gave her, Alicia decided to begin contacting the three half-brothers through their shared biological father. This puts her right back into the stress of wondering if more rejections were waiting for her. One of them did agree to take a 23andMe test at Alicia's request. And this just floors me to tell you this. He was raised by my father. And he comes out and he and I don't match. We are now uh, in a world where he's an NPE. He doesn't even know who his father is. I had a third half-brother who I'm still waiting to get, have him do the DNA test. But it is, it's so crazy that it, your life, which you thought was just a, in, a, in a way a normal life, and now you're dealing with a parental identity discovery, as Jody likes to call it, or NPE, non-paternal event, 
and it, it shakes you to your core. And you're starting to see the domino effect of people falling left and right. What are people like? How are they when it gets down to the nitty gritty of life? The personal stuff that we have to deal with personally. We have to figure out who we are. We have a mother we're not sure we can trust anymore. We're having family that hangs up on a new family. I have who I thought is my half-brother. He finds out he's not my half-brother. You know, we're still talking. We're still friendly. The other half-brother, in the meantime, decides he doesn't want to speak to me. So I only have this one one brother that's uh, uh, not my half-brother that's been very kind to help me out. So I, as because I'm looking and searching, I, I'm feeling alone and on this island. I'm I'm start looking for second cousins, and I came across numbers a number of wonderful second cousins, and that is where I feel like I finally um, began my healing process. Was these people were willing to listen to me and hear my story? The search for family takes many forms for each of us. For some, it is the close bond of first cousins you grew up with over shared family traditions. For others, it's the family you choose and the friendships forged over time. Alicia felt fortunate to find healing with new second cousins who received her with open arms. One of those second cousins joined Alicia on the podcast while she visited Alicia in Seattle. Meet Janet. I grew up in the same town where uh, Alicia's biological father was born and raised and lived, Uh, and I knew him, Uh, but I knew him as a very young child, and uh, there was a point in my life, I'm about 11 years older than Alicia is, so there was a point in uh, my parents, uh, early in their marriage, they were very close um, to this cousin because he and my mother were first cousins. But of course, I moved on and uh, now live in a different state. And um, when uh, when Alicia uh, reached out to me, which was about this time, the fall of uh, 2017, um, my background is I'm a clinical social worker. And in the course of my clinical work, I had worked with some adoptees who, um, you know, had struggled with the decision to um, to search or to not search for their biological families. And so I had, you know, some awareness of, of some of the things that um, are significant in this whole process. But what stood out to me um, was... Alicia was so well prepared by the time she reached out to me. She had so much fact, you know, factual information. And so my role basically was, you know, to affirm and confirm uh, some of the information and, you know, uh, add a, a few anecdotal things. Her sincerity, her openness, her preparedness, her hunger to have this information was so evident in those in that first conversation um, that I, I felt so badly that, you know, I, I did have this information, though, from the perspective of a, of a child's memory um, uh, about him. And um, I, I just felt so badly that I had to impart that and confirm that, yes, he was considered a black sheep in the family, and um, there was this fallout in his professional career, and, and I wish it were different. You know, I so wished 
it had been another cousin in the Discovery of new family doesn't just benefit the NPE who found their tribe. Janet explains how she benefited as well. One of the other positive things, and I really um, you know, want to acknowledge this, given the other work and the other contacts that she has made with, I'll say, other third cousins, some of whom I've not been in touch with at all or very minimally over the years because I moved so far away. But that's been a, a nice added gift, if you will, to hear um, some of the things that she has shared about folks she's been in touch with. And I've actually made some contact with some of those folks more than, uh, you know, I would have if it hadn't been for Alicia. So that's been this added bonus, if you will, um, you know, to hear updates of family members that I would not have uh, reached out to or vice versa. All of the family on the paternal side, uh, just about every one of them are in very high, how should I put it, the professions that are time consuming. They're, they're medical doctors, they're attorneys, and uh, they're just their own big businesses. If I named the name of them, you would know it. But they're all very, very busy people. But what helped is my own mental health, reaching out and making sure to I, I had somebody to identify with, that I understood who I was, where I, what I came from. That even though my father was who he was and had his issues, that there were other family members that I could begin to uh, implement in my own life to become engaged with them, if you you know need a good word for that. And it meant so much to me that through my own personal journey, that these cousins, and they were all, they're all first or second cousins, they were the second cousins especially, were becoming, they really became my family. I've spoken to... Uh, several of them now we've talked about hopefully having a reunion at some t some point to get that all of us get together but I want to bring up when I went to visit uh, Janet in her hometown uh, when she was born she's 11 years older than me my father went to her home her parents home to meet Janet when she was an infant Janet father was a professional photographer and did video, loved videos and all that stuff back in the 1940s and 50s. He was videotaping uh, my father holding Janet. I asked, asked her several times, can you forward it, rewind it, fast forward, rewind it, fast forward. I could get over watching my father, like taking his glasses off, putting them down, his mannerisms, the way he looked at her. It made me know that my dad was somebody that loved. It was very emotional for, obviously, for both of us, um, because I sat there, you know, and I had seen this before, but not from this perspective. It was very sweet. It was a very sweet, tender moment. The video Alicia saw humanized her father. He became a dad in her mind. It was an important counterpoint to the stories she'd heard from the first cousin, depicting a driven but more troubled man who entered into casual relationships with women and was just careless of how that would affect people. Now she got to see the softer side of him, and that brought up a lot of feelings for Alicia. Well, the sadness sort of overcame me first. I really feel like I missed out on a lot of missed opportunities. Um, 
be able to have at least known him maybe in my young adult life. The father that raised me died in 1993. I don't understand why my mother wouldn't have told me the truth at that point, but she did not. It just, it was one of those things where you, how do you explain it? You, it's not right. It's not fair. It's not right. But that's the lot in life that I was given. And so I had to make the best of it. And I had to learn to be able to forgive my mother. And, uh, and I have, I have forgiven her. Uh, we're still dealing with some fallout with me sharing my story more publicly. I spoke recently about my genetic story about some of my own health issues that were familiar in the family. I brought that out in a blog post I wrote and my mother read it and it it opened up her wounds and it upset her. She did not want me to share. And so I'm beginning to figure out that I'm learning about having to deal with boundaries with her, making sure that I don't hurt her, but she understands that this is my story now. You really just want to be able to share about, hey, this is my life now. This is who I am. This is my story to tell. When I share my story, because I am known in the NPE community uh, pretty much throughout the United States, I want to be able to be a positive influence to others that it's okay. It's okay to share your story. That you're not, Just because you were given this lot in life, that this genetic storm hits you, that doesn't mean that you can't come out on the other end of the story in a positive way. Um, this is Janet speaking with my therapist hat on. I, I think that the emotion, the overwhelming emotion of shame is such a painful and deeply rooted emotion to work through. And when you're talking about a generation of women who did not necessarily reach out to therapy, psychotherapy, and utilize that kind of support and input, uh, it's a difficult thing to overcome. I don't know if I will ever be able to help my mother enough to feel like she's forgiven. I don't know how to break that cycle. That's the boundary issue. My heart breaks, though, because she is my mom. I want her to feel safe and I also don't know I need to tell my story to help others and that because it's helped me. And I, my work now locally is we're looking at working with the donor conceived issues, um, the adoptees, the laws that are out there now um, for NPEs to be able, if they want to change their birth certificate, uh, the Parentage Act needs to be looked at that was recently passed in four states. There, we are, have a lot of work left to do in our in this field. We're going to be for this entire. My, I think for the rest of my life, there's not a day I don't wake up thinking about what is it we can do positive to change the face of what is going on with the NPE. We so often hear about the shame that moms, the secret keepers, feel about the discovery of these parts of their lives. The shame acts like a trauma, inducing PTSD type responses like we saw in the selective memory of Alicia's mom. The challenge for the child of these secrets is to balance the facts of their mom's environments with the right to know their story and live openly without being a secret themselves. Culturally, there was almost no way women in previous generations could make it through these choices without shame. Religious and societal expectations made it impossible for women to live like normal sexual beings. Thanks to Alicia and Janet for telling their story. It's heartwarming to feel their connection and know that Alicia is out there championing the interests of the NPE population. 
To learn more about Alicia's work with the legal right to know genetic information, visit righttoknow.us. See you next time. Sex, Lies, and the Truth is written and produced by Christina Fitzgibbons and Jody Klugman-Rab, two moms and professional women living the dream. We crack each other up, we can sniff out the truth, and we help people tell their stories. If you or someone you know would like to tell their story, you can reach us at sexliesinthetruth.com. If you are a fan of Sex, Lies, and the Truth and want to support us, you can do that through Patreon. Patreon is a really cool platform where fans of shows like ours can pledge a small amount each month, even just a few dollars, to support the show. You can find us there at www.patreon.com forward slash sex, lies, and the truth.